Thank you for inviting me to speak to you here this evening. It's a shame I can't see you better, given the lighting here. Um, but uh, I remember from when the lighting was turned down that uh, you're, you're uh, comfortably dressed. So I hope you enjoy uh, the evening here. You have a very exciting and informative session ahead of you for the next uh, week or two. I guess it's a two-week session you're here. Um, and uh, I appreciate the opportunity to be a part of it. So I know this is an audience where I don't have to convince you of the importance of financial intermediation uh, to our economy uh, and the importance of banks in particular as financial intermediaries. But the banking industry, as you all are very well aware, has been subject to harsh scrutiny since the financial crisis of 2007 and 8. There were numerous instances of government support for investors uh, during that, that crisis, particularly for the creditors of some large financial institutions. And that seemed to spark a, a widespread popular backlash uh, against the banking industry, and that helped shape the legislative response uh, to the crisis. Significant changes in the regulatory landscape have been taking place as well, driven, I believe, by a desire to improve financial stability uh, and to address this problem of large financial firms that are perceived as too big to fail. The pervasiveness of this problem, this too big to fail problem, is illustrated by the size and the growth of the federal financial safety net. And by that, I mean the portion of the liabilities of the financial sector, so taking all the financial firms in the, in the economy, um, the, their liabilities, the proportion of their liabilities protected from loss uh, by the federal government. So this in includes both explicit guarantees of protection, such as deposit insurance, and implicit guarantees, which represent the support that investors expect based on prior precedents that have been set or by announced policies. In 2013, the value of the liabilities covered by the safety net, both implicit and explicit, was nearly $26 trillion, more than one and a half times our country's entire annual gross domestic product. That represents 60% of the financial sector's liabilities, government guaranteed, either explicitly or implicitly. In 1965, that same figure, uh, the value of assets protected by the safety net was less than half of GDP. Now, these estimates were calculated by Richmond Fed economists and researchers. They've developed this. It's a, they call it a bailout barometer, uh, and it's designed to monitor the growth of the safety net over time, and you can find it at richmondfed.org. In fact, it was cited in an editorial in the Wall Street Journal this morning. Uh, you can find there if you'd like. They did a nice job. The story with, of how we got into this alarming situation uh, spans more than 100 years. I think it's really useful to take a broader historical uh, perspective because it reflects a, decision, a series of decisions that were actually made in pursuit of financial stability. But those decisions distorted the incentive of financial market participants to monitor and control risk. And arguably, some of those decisions have made our financial sector less stable rather than more stable. Instances of government intervention during times of distress have reinforced creditors' expectations of support, and they've dampened incentives to contain risk-taking. 
This has pro promoted financial firms that are of greater size and complexity and interconnectedness, and it's encouraged greater leverage and more reliance on highly liquid short-term funding. Perceived guarantees thus encourage financial fragility. That in turn induces interventions when distress occurs, and that encourages further fragility. This is a corrosive cycle, and the ultimate result has been taxpayer-funded subsidies to financial firms that are widely viewed as deeply unfair. Today, regulators and policymakers are strengthening supervision and regulation, and they're motivated by the understandable, understandable desire to prevent another crisis like the one we experienced in 2007 and 2008. But regulation alone is not likely to be enough to counteract the moral hazard that afflicts such a, a large and growing share of the financial sector's liabilities. Instead, I believe we should work to restore market discipline and thereby solve the fundamental problem that's at the heart of too big to fail. Before I talk about the history and explain this strategy in a little more detail, I should note that these are my own views and not necessarily the views of my colleagues in the Federal Reserve System, but you would know that from my 2012 voting record, I guess. To understand the origins of uh, the modern too-big-to-fail problem, it's important to understand some features of the banking system around the turn of the 20th century, over 100 years ago. First thing to know is that the banking industry was highly fragmented back then. Branching restrictions meant that essentially every little town had its own small bank, to the tune of more than 27,000 banks in the United States in the early 1900s. These small banks were highly vulnerable to local economic shocks, and banks were unable to diversify risks across regions and, or to head off uh, bank runs by moving funds between branches. Second, issuing currency, paper notes issued that were used hand-to-hand, -hand, was a very cumbersome process. As a result of the National Banking Acts of 1863 and 1864, Currency had to be backed by certain U.S. government bonds. This meant that in order for a bank to issue new notes, it would have to purchase the appropriate securities, deposit those securities with the U.S. Treasury, wait for the Treasury to authorize the Bureau of Engraving and Printing to print the notes, and then wait for the notes to be printed and shipped to them. The entire process could take as long as three weeks from request to delivery. This made it difficult for banks to supply enough currency during seasonal fluctuations in demand, such as during the fall harvest or during the holiday shopping seasons. Banks also struggled to provide enough currency during banking panics that often accompanied economic downturns, when many people would rush to withdraw their deposits at the same time. So these country banks, they called them. That's, that's what they, the term was used uh, to refer to banks that were outside the major cities. Nowadays, we call them community banks, but they called them country banks at the time. These country banks were all connected to city banks uh, via an intricate web of correspondent banking relationships that I'm sure this audience understands well. And city banks were connected to each other via clearinghouses that they formed, sort of joint members in which the members um, operated the, a clearinghouse. This system made it possible to clear and settle checks very efficiently and distribute currency nationwide. But it also meant that strains in the system could easily spread quickly from city banks to country banks or vice versa. 
When these strains developed into full-blown financial crises, the country banks often found themselves cut off when clearing houses restricted the supply of notes and liquidity to the country banks in order to hunker down and protect all the, the clearinghouse member banks in the city. The result, times like that, was frequent spikes in interest rates. So it's supply and demand. Cut off supply, demand is high for, for money, interest rates, price of money, interest rates spike. And sometimes when the demand for notes was particularly acute, a suspension of payment to depositors. Banks would limit deposits to a certain amount of money or cut off, um, cut off withdrawals altogether. The, the panic of 1907, very famously, was the last straw for many people. And the banking reform movement uh, gathered momentum and eventually resulted in the founding of the Federal Reserve uh, in 1913 to, and this, was, this is the legislated purpose, to furnish an elastic currency. That's in the title of the act. In other words, to provide a supply of banknotes that readily expanded and contracted with the needs of the economy. The new central bank was also intended to increase the viability of country banks by preventing their isolation uh, and then being cut off during times of financial distress. So this system functioned pretty smoothly uh, for more than a decade. But between 1929 and 1933, more than one-third of the country's roughly 25,000 banks at that time failed. Entire states declared bank holidays, and it culminated in a nationwide banking holiday in March of 1933. Depositor losses, uh, disruptions to the payment system were enormously costly and disruptive. One popular account of this episode holds that the crisis was caused by self-fulfilling depositor runs, fearing failure. People rushed to withdraw their, their funds, thus ensuring that failure occurred. But modern scholarship has concluded that the crisis was in fact a result of shocks to the solvency of the banking system. The Federal Reserve allowed the money supply to collapse and a severe deflation resulted. 28% decline in average prices over three years and that drove many bank borrowers into default. So picture this, negative 8% inflation, three years in a row. Uh, so naturally, people were unable to sell goods at the prices they used to, so borrowers defaulted in droves. Bank runs did contribute to the fall in the money supply, but the Fed could have offset the effects of those bank runs through open market purchases of security, which as you know, would inject bank reserves into the system and could be withdrawn in the form of Federal Reserve notes and so could have easily offset the collapse in the money supply, but we didn't. These shocks were exacerbated by the fragmented nature of the banking system. And the most striking evidence for this is the contrasting case of Canada. Very similar economy, tenth our size, but scaled down, similar structure, similar activities. It experienced very similar economic shocks uh, in, from 29 to 33, but their banking laws allowed consolidation from early in the 19th century. As a result, there were no serious banking panics or bank failures, despite the fact that they didn't even have a central bank until 1935. Legislators were well aware of this. They were well aware of the example of Canada uh, and that allowing consolidation would make for a safer banking system. Um, they were well aware that banking restrictions were really at the heart 
of uh, banking panics, but the unit banking system, that's what they called it, little unit banks all over the country, that was defended by politically influential populist and agrarian groups. And those forces lobbied instead for a system of government-provided deposit insurance that would preserve small local banks by protecting their depositors. Although there was significant opposition to the idea of deposit insurance, Roosevelt was against it at first, for example. The supporters prevailed and the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation came into being in 1933. The obvious benefit of deposit insurance is depositors don't have to worry about what's going on in the bank, but that has that points to the obvious drawback as well, that it creates moral hazard. Bankers have an incentive to make riskier investments unless there's some counteracting regulations or supervision. And depositors have less incentive to monitor the risk-taking behavior of their banks. And we saw these incentives come to a head during the savings and loan crisis of the 1980s when hundreds of federally insured savings and loan institutions failed um, and it bankrupted the Federal Savings and Loan Insurance Corporation, costed taxpayers an estimated $124 billion. Now, there are many factors that contributed to the SNL debacle, but it's unlikely that it could have reached the proportions it did without the distorted incentives created by federal deposit insurance. So just to sum up this, this little historical review, 1913, policymakers adopted a structure for the Fed that was intended through its lending authority to protect small country banks from being caught off in times of stress. Two decades later, policymakers create a government insurance scheme for an industry made up of small banks rather than allowing for larger, more diversified banks to form. The great irony of both of these decisions is that while they were motivated by a desire to protect the viability of small banks, they actually laid the groundwork for banks perceived now as too big to fail. I'll explain how that came about. The irony became apparent in 1970 when the Fed and the FDIC began to intervene in credit markets in ways that protected uninsured creditors of large financial firms. Prominent examples include Penn Central Railroad in 1971, Bank of the Commonwealth in Detroit in 1972, and Franklin National in 1974 out on Long Island. And then, most famously in 1984, the Continental Illinois Bank in Chicago, a failing $40 billion bank, was able to borrow from the discount window even as it was receiving a capital injection from the FDIC. During congressional hearings on the Continental Illinois failure, the comptroller of the currency at the time went so far as to admit that 11 other banks in the U.S. were so large uh, that uh, they would likely be bailed out, rescued by uh, regulators if they'd become insolvent. So by the mid-1980s, financial market participants had good reason to expect the uninsured creditors of large banking institutions to be insulated from losses by the government. In the 1990s, banks finally were allowed to branch, both within uh, states and across state lines. They grew very rapidly. In 1990, the sum of the assets of the four largest banks in the country was equivalent to less than 10% of GDP. By 2008, the, the assets of the top four banks were more, was more than 40% of GDP, and that ratio has only declined slightly since then. Now, I should say, size in and of itself isn't necessarily a concern. There are inherent benefits 
uh, of economies of scale and scope in banking. But the restraints on size were lifted at a time only after federal regulators had established expectations that intervention would support the uninsured creditors of such institutions. Those expectations served as an artificial accelerant to the growth of large banks. The speed with which those large institutions grew made it difficult for their management and governance structures to keep up, I believe, with the increasingly risky activities they were engaged in and the increasingly large scale and scope of their operations. And this may account for some of the challenges the uh, larger banks um, have experienced lately. So the onset of the most recent crisis presented policymakers with a new set of choices once again. And once again, uh, they chose rescue, this time in the form of special Fed lending facilities and direct support for many firms. The guiding principle behind these actions and others that followed was that credit markets were malfunctioning and the remedy was additional central bank lending. Arguably, however, these measures simply reinforced market participants' expectations that the Fed and the FDIC were standing by, ready to rescue the creditors of financial institutions that showed signs of distress. The legacy of these policy choices and of others we've made over the past century is a large and growing financial safety net that I described for you at the beginning. The rise of implicit protections is especially dr dramatic. In 1965, vir virtually all of the guarantees provided by the safety net were explicit guarantees such as deposit insurance. Today, more than 40% of the guarantees are implicit, according to Richmond Fed estimates, created through the precedents set by discretionary interventions. These implied commitments regarding future interventions, as I said, distort the incentives of banks and their counterparties, most importantly. And they create an uneven competitive playing field in the banking industry. Without these regulatory distortions, you would hope to see firms of different sizes uh, competing based on their own natural advantages. Uh, the advantage of a large firm versus a small firm. And you folks in the banking industry have seen that play out um, in your day-to-day -day work. But the choices we've made in the pursuit of financial stability mean we cannot presume that any advantages enjoyed by large, large banks now are purely the result of the comparative advantages they have or of underlying economies of scale. Now, there, there might be other aspects of the regulatory regime that cut in the opposite direction, but overall, the fact is we appear to have created a banking industry in which the slope of the competitive playing field depends on prospects for policy interventions uh, to support uninsured creditors, more than on the relative value, the true relative economic value uh, that firms of different size uh, provide uh, to their customers. So far I've told you what's wrong, but you might be wondering what we can do about this. One option is more regulation, more constraints on risk-taking. And the Dodd-Franks Act, uh, Dodd-Frank Act pursues this avenue. Uh, it imposes greater capital buffers, um, and uh, more ex-ante uh, constraints on risk-taking uh, through enhanced supervision. But new opportunities for risk-taking are always going to emerge as financial markets and the economy evolves. And it's asking too much, I think, to expect frontline supervisors, the kind of people you meet uh, in your work, to forever stand in 
for well-aligned incentives. Moreover, stronger restraints on risk-taking increase the incentive for market participants to find a way to operate outside of the regulated sector. Expanding regulatory scope to chase down fragility wherever it shows up in the economy doesn't look like a promising strategy. And the increasingly complex regulatory scheme we have can have the side effect of overburdening small banks, furthering the disadvantage relative to the biggest banks. So the Dodd-Frank Act also established the Orderly Liquidation Authority, or OLA, which gives the FDIC the ability, with the agreement of other financial regulators, to wind down a large financial institution using funds borrowed from the U.S. Treasury. The authors of the act envisioned OLA as a way to put an end to taxpayer-funded bailouts. But the FDIC's announced plans for implementation are likely going to encourage many creditors to expect that they will benefit from the FDIC's discretion. And that's going to dampen, again, their incentive to contain risk-taking. If expectations for support for the creditors of financially distressed institutions are widespread, regulators are likely going to feel forced to provide support to short-term creditors to avoid the turbulence in a crisis of disappointing those expectations. So rather than ending too big to fail, in my view, the OLA appears to replicate the dynamic that actually created too big to fail to begin with. So I don't think the longer term solution is more regulation, uh, as vital as that is coming out of the crisis. Instead, it's to restore market discipline so that financial firms and their creditors have an incentive to avoid fragile funding relationships. I think two conditions are necessary to achieve this. First, creditors must not expect government support in the event of financial distress. And second, policymakers must actually allow financial firms to fail without government support. If we can make unassisted failures manageable, policymakers could credibly commit to foregoing rescues, and that would improve private sector incentives. The Dodd-Frank Act actually lays out a path toward making bankruptcy workable for large financial institutions. The Act requires that these institutions create resolution plans, also known as living wills, and file these plans with the Fed and the FDIC. These are detailed instructions. Uh, they explain how a financial institution could be wound down under U.S. bankruptcy laws without threatening the rest of the financial system or requiring a government um, rescue. The plans explain how to disentangle the very many different legal entities, sometimes numbering in the thousands, that make up a large financial firm. And the plans are to explain how they would fund themselves uh, without drawing on government resources uh, during the time they're in bankruptcy. Under the Dodd-Frank Act, large banks and other systemically important firms, also known as SIFIs, are required to submit these plans on an annual basis for review by the Fed and the FDIC, as I said. Now, the resolution planning practice we have now does not uh, assume that the current operating profile of these financial firms um, is given. Um, and that makes sense because the current characteristics of these firms evolved in the presence of this set of precedents set by regulators um, that uh, were trying to avoid the use of bankruptcy. So, these firms are explicitly not designed to go through bankruptcy easily because they were 
presuming, being large and too big to fail, that no one would let them go through bankruptcy. The Dodd-Frank Act provides that if the Federal Reserve and the FDIC jointly determined that a plan would not credibly facilitate an orderly resolution under the bankruptcy code, the firm is required to submit a revised plan to address identified deficiencies. And if the Fed and the FDIC jointly determine that the revised plan does not remedy identified deficiencies, they can require more capital, they can increase liquidity requirements on the firm, or restrict the growth activities or operations of the firm. They can even require firms to make divestitures. The needed alterations to the structure uh, and operations of large financial firms are not going to be popular since they're going to involve the reductions in reliance on short-term funding and the adoption of more easily severable subsidiary structures. But I think these changes are feasible uh, without sacrificing the inherent benefits of large financial firms uh, for the economy. The credibility of these living wills would be compromised, in my view, if we continue to depend on government backstops in order to avoid having to make these needed changes to the large firms. One final step might be required before financial stability can be assured. Market participants must have a well-anchored expectation that government-funded rescues will not be forthcoming. Ideally, policymakers would act uh, of their own accord in a manner that's consistent with those expectations. But in turbulent times, as we've seen, despite the best intentions, it will be tempting uh, to act otherwise. This is a particular danger for central banks whose independent balance sheets place our, our fiscal actions beyond the scope of the legislative appropriations process. Credible commitment to orderly, unassisted resolutions thus might require constraining or eliminating the government's ability to provide ad hoc bailouts. This could mean repealing the Federal Reserve's remaining emergency lending powers or further restraining the Fed's ability to lend to failing institutions. And once robust and credible resolution plans are in place, we would be able to responsibly wind down the FDIC's orderly liquidation authority and the related financing mechanisms that have been put in place. So in closing, let me just say that I believe that this strategy can bring us a financial system where market participants don't expect government support and thus they manage their risks appropriately. Where taxpayers aren't on the hook for institutions with the wrong incentives. And where financial institutions can effectively provide the services that a dynamic and innovative economy require. This is going to be hard work and there will be some who claim that it's impossible. But the alternative seems less promising to me. The specter of ever-increasing share of the financial sector that's effectively guaranteed by taxpayers. That path is dangerous and it's unlikely to serve our country well. So I believe we need to f step up and face the challenge of creating a stable and resilient financial system. Thank you very much for your attention. I appreciate being able to speak to you tonight.